0: Welcome to another inspiring message from Milestone Church in Keller, Texas. Once again, we want to welcome you to Milestone Church. I want to welcome those of you at our McKinney campus as well as those of you watching online. Well, if you have kids in school, or if you're a teacher, or if you're in school yourself, you made it. It's spring break. Give yourself a round of applause. It's worth recognizing. One of the things I love about you as a church family is that you guys are committed to growing and learning and getting better. You're not looking for a reason to take a break, you're looking for chances to take steps and we love that about you and that's a big part of where I spend my time and my energy and I love it. I'm, I'm in really consumed by this idea of how do we become the best version of who God created us to be. And there's so many different ways that you can do that. All those next steps that we talked about, all the different groups that we talked about, small groups, weekend services, there are so many different ways. And in fact, even, even today, maybe more than ever before, There's an opportunity to do this. You know, you can listen to TED Talks, or you can read, or you can get life hacks, if you know what those are, or pro tips, or all these little ways that we look at and think about, how do I become better? How do I become, uh, uh, how do I grow? How do I become this version of who God wanted me to be? Well, I would say this, out of all the different ways that we could go about that journey, and it's a worthwhile journey, and something I think all of us should embrace, Really, there's no better place to start and no better place to turn than to understand the God who created you. Really, when we talk about our groups or our classes or a gathering like this, or even reading your Bible, we like to say that when you read your Bible, the goal of reading the Bible is not to study a bunch of spiritual information to prepare for a test. It's not to fulfill a religious duty or obligation. God gave us his word to show us his character and his nature. Because the way for us to grow and to become the best version of who we are is to come to a greater understanding and relationship with who he is. So we like to talk about his characteristics, his traits, his nature. Who is this God and what is he like? So this weekend we're gonna talk about one of his character traits. Maybe it's one that you've overlooked or you haven't thought that much about. I know for me it's one that, I don't know that I've ever really preached a full message. Maybe you're you're watching online or there in McKinney and you're thinking about, okay, which one is he going with? If you were following along with the title, it's kind of like a spoiler alert, I already gave it away. But I love sports. One of the things I think about in sports, when a sports team's trying to get better, they hold the draft. And the worse your team is, the sooner you get to draft. So I was thinking if we were gonna draft the characteristics of God and his nature and his character, I think most people with the first pick in the draft, they would say, give me that love, I want the love of God, right? Then somewhere along the way we'd want the power, someone would want the grace, someone would want the, you know, the omniscience, the omnipresence, there's all these different things. There's always that one guy in the group. What would you do if you had three wishes? First wish, I'd wish for a million missions. Get out of here, you're trying to gain the system. But somewhere along the way, eventually someone would pick the mercy of God. See, because the mercy of God is kind of one of those ones we overlook. The mercy of God is kind of like the grace of God's little brother. Like he's welcome to come along, but we don't totally know what he's like. And maybe that's just me. Maybe I have this perception of weakness when I think of mercy. Could be a lot of different reasons. Do you remember the game on the playground? Any of you play this game? Where you grab the other person's hands and you twist till one of you says mercy? That's what we played on my playground. I guess there wasn't as much supervision. Think about my kids playing that, I was like, no! Let's be honest, right? Like, who had a bike helmet when we were kids? Maybe that explains a lot. I know, um, we didn't just play that mercy game. My friend and I, we were into wrestling and we decided to give each other sleeper holds to see if we could make each other pass out. You're like, that makes a lot of sense. I get him now more. And here's the point. Mercy Really, when you think about it, if you were to define it, I would define it this way. Mercy, Webster says it this way, that it's compassion or forbearance, which is an old-fashioned term, which means delayed punishment towards an offender. Mercy is delayed punishment towards an offender. Now, immediately we have problems with this. We have challenges with none of us wants to identify as an offender, but the reality is all of us at some point making a mistake, we offend someone, we hurt someone, and now we're in a position for mercy. And here's what I would say. The problem with mercy is this. We all want it when we need it, but we never wanna be in a situation where we have to ask for it. We all want the mercy of God when we need it, but none of us honestly like to be in a situation where we really need it. See, if you've lived a little while, you know that pain is real, and challenges are real, and life is hard, and matter, no matter how hard we try, we can't make life fair. Now, the good news is, this idea is all throughout God's word. He's completely aware of the reality of how you and I live. If you were to think about, okay, where does the Bible talk about mercy? You probably, some of you watching online would go, okay, one thing I know about mercy is they're new every morning. We like that one. That sounds so encouraging, hopeful. God's mercies are new every morning. Well, that actually comes from lamentations. And if you've been feeling low or discouraged lately, I would just encourage you, stay away from lamentations. That's really encouraging to say that God's mercies are new every morning. The problem is, that's in Lamentations three, which also includes this little ditty just the encouraging little phrase where the writer of Lamentations says to God, You make me chew gravel all day long. That's discouraging. I don't even want to know what that would be like. We, we think about maybe you'd think, you know, Psalm 23 Surely His goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's encouraging. How powerful is that? I'll take some, sign me up for that. The problem is, Psalm 23 also says that we walk through the shadow of the valley of death, and then this great one, how about this? God's preparing a table for us for dinner in the presence of our enemies. Good news, you get dinner with God. Bad news, the person you dislike the most is there with you. That's an awkward dinner party, right? Like, this is this picture of mercy. It's complicated, it's complex. We want mercy, but it's hard for us to give mercy. We don't really know how it comes to us, We don't really know. How does that work? Does God do it? it, What is that like? I, I love this little one from Psalm 40. I love Psalm 40. Do not withhold your mercy from me. This is David. He's the king. He's a man after God's own heart. If anybody could really felt like, I got a pretty good chance to get God's mercy, it's David. And yet David is stressed. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me for troubles without number surround me, and I think that's so interesting. My sins have overtaken me. David's not sure how this mercy comes to him. He desperately needs it, but somewhere deep down he knows his own wrongdoing, his own poor choices, his own offenses against someone else have contributed to his need. Mercy is complicated. It's difficult. It's challenging. The Bible says no matter how deep the pain you're experiencing is, Mercy isn't in fact weak, but it's strong enough to meet you in that place. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter two. As we keep thinking about this mercy of God, what is it like and how do we receive it and how does it impact our lives? You know, I think a lot of this has to do with our personality. You know, in McKinney there, some of us are gonna be more inclined to extend mercy to people. We, we, we're compassionate by nature. Others of us, we find it difficult. Certainly I'm in that group. This may come as a surprise to you, but I can kind of make a big deal out of things. There's a technical term for that. You can use it, I encourage you to use it. It's kind of a fun little phrase. Rabble rouser. Somebody who's a rabble rouser stirs stuff up. He gets everybody excited, gets everybody mad. Something of a little fire starter, if you will. Pun intended, if you know what I mean. I know it may come to a surprise to you, but I've been one who at times, could get animated, excited, could be combative maybe even, I know this is hard, maybe even argumentative. So it's not hard for me to get in there and start arguing about something and and when you're arguing and things are a big deal, it becomes difficult to extend mercy and grace because there's winners and there's losers. I have a little meme that I like to send, I don't know if you guys do this, I encourage you to send memes. This is one of my favorites. This little guy likes mercy. His house is literally burning down, and he's like, no, 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 this is fine, it's all good. I like to send this one. I have a phrase that I like to use all the time. I use it around friends and family. I was encouraged to find out that in in 2018, the smart people who decide what words go in the dictionary added this one. I'd like to take some credit in the influence and the expansion of this phrase, and the phrase is dumpster fire. I will use it in a sentence. That person is a dumpster fire. Now, if you're not aware, a dumpster is where you put garbage, so already it's a bad situation. Then you set it on fire, and then you put it on a river and it floods, right? Like, Sarah sometimes will say, how's your day going? I go, I got little one picture for what my reality is like. And I send her this thing. She's like, maybe take it down a notch. <laughs> See, he, here's the thing. We live in a time of constant outrage. You might even say one person said we live in an age of outrage. People are mad. We're mad about all kinds of things. In fact, it would be not inaccurate to say, that's a great double negative, another way to say it. It would be accurate to say that we live in an age of outrage where we look for things to be mad about. And the funny thing is, and it's really not funny, it's probably more tragic than anything else, One of the things that we get mad about is if someone else isn't as mad about something that we're mad about. It's this perpetual cycle all the time. There are so many different reasons. I I think there's a lot of reasons for this. We know a lot more than we've ever known before. There's always been injustice in the world. Things have always been unfair. We've always had this sense of like, none of us likes being taken advantage of. We don't like the feeling that someone's getting away with something. There's something, especially violating the feeling like, man, the world is not fair and there's injustice and someone needs to do something about it. But there are so many hurts, so many offenses, so many injustices, there's not enough people and sympathy and empathy to go around. And the only thing maybe then worse than feeling violated or abused or on the receiving end of an offense is if no one else cares and no one else notices. I read this week, I've always known that our cell phones are making empathy difficult for us. And I I knew that the average person unlocks their phone 150 times a day. Here's what I didn't know. The average person touches their phone 2,600 times per day. Now this is not an anti-technology message, but here's what I would say, psychologists will tell you That every person needs at least 13 physical touches. A hug, a handshake, a fist bump. Something along those lines to feel connected and alive like someone sees them and someone knows them. Could it be that we have so much access to information? The problem with technology is there's very little empathy. You hear information disconnected between the person and this causes us to view things in the extreme. Saw yesterday... This weekend, there was a man who was suing a magazine, young man, here was the basis of his lawsuit. He said, I'm suing this magazine for slander because they used my likeness in a story about how all millennials and all hipsters, if you will, look the same, and that's dehumanizing, so I'm bringing a lawsuit towards you. The magazine said, okay, well, let's do a little due diligence. It turns out you're not the person in the picture. There's a real lawsuit of a man in India who's suing his parents because they did not get his consent to bring him into the world and life is difficult and filled with pain and no one understands his plight. Those are extreme examples. But I think all of us can relate at some level to the fact that someone's taking advantage of us. It's not fair Someone needs to do something about this. Someone's getting away with something. And if you'd permit me for a moment, we don't even have to look at our own culture. We could just look in our own homes and maybe even our own lives. I have a bunch of kids in my house. Uh, last time I checked, it's four. And <laughs> I've been working with my eight-year-old son. We're trying to learn about responsibility and privileges and how those things go together. He loves the bonus room. That's kind of his room and his mind. So he likes to play games and watch shows and he's kinda all over the place. He doesn't sit like a normal person. He sits on top of Ottomans and under them and pushes them around and moves the furniture and gets stuff out and leaves controllers everywhere and good luck trying to find the remote once he's been in the room and so I say, son, This is, whose room is this? Is this your room? No, it's the family's room. So then every time you use it, it's a responsibility and it's also a privilege. If you can't handle the responsibility, you'll lose the privilege. And I said, son, I'm gonna give you grace. Let's clean up together. This is what I expect it to look like. He's like, okay, dad, okay. He's like, thanks for the grace. I'll I'll try to do better. Yesterday I woke up. He comes busting into the room. Dad, you're never gonna believe this. His little sister's name is Lila. Lila was in the bonus room. She left blankets, controllers, remotes everywhere. Dad, you need to do something about this. So I said, son, remember with you, we gave you grace? He's like, I know, Dad, but she needs to learn about responsibility. I was like, okay, we'll talk to her. And then I hear the footsteps. He's eight, but he's big. And so I hear the elephant going up the stairs. And this is his voice, not an exaggeration. Lila! He's eight years old. Pray for me. Lila! You need to handle your responsibility. I was like, okay, good information, bad application, right? So yesterday was a beautiful day. We got things at our house. We got some yard work that needs to be done. So I said, family, children of mine, gather around. We shall go out as a family and have bonding moments by doing some work in the backyard. They all rallied around. Thank you, benevolent father, for your goodness and kindness. Not even close. <laughs> no way, Dad. This is what immediately happened. Dad, what are they doing? Dad, Elijah goes, what is Luke doing? I just got up. He's, he, he should have to do the, Is he digging or am I raking? Because I don't want to rake, but I'll dig. And then they're all working around. And then, you know, Lila slipped off, went somewhere else. She was like, I'm, I'm not even messing around with these people. I'm out of here. He, here's the point. We're so deeply concerned with who's doing what and what's fair. But if I had looked to any of them, and said, I'm gonna give you mercy, you don't have to do anything, they would've said, yes! And the truth is, we're all that way. We're deeply aware of what somebody else is getting away with, yet in our own life, we're looking for God to give us grace and mercy. Which brings us to Ephesians chapter two. I love Ephesians, love the New Testament. Great thing about the New Testament is in the person of Christ, all of the mystery, all of the, all of the ambiguity of the Old Testament. David's wondering, about how does this mercy work? All comes to fullness and all comes to completion in the person of Jesus. Ephesians two says this, starting here in verse three. All of us, all of us, which in the Greek really means everyone, you're saying, is that me? Yes, it's you, it's me. It's all of us used to live this way. What way? following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. This is the stunning, too good to be true, incredible message of the gospel. And maybe you're not familiar with this message, or maybe you've been around it so long you've lost the power of what it's saying. But let's start with this point right here. All of us. What makes mercy so hard is, the same people who need mercy from God Create situations that bring others to their knees through our choices, through our decisions. And let's be honest, this is the hardest part, through our nature. My children didn't need a crash course in how to be selfish and looking for reasons to be irresponsible. It comes by them honestly. We all come from the factory that way. Every one of us is born selfish. Selfish. That's so hard. We think, oh, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And And everyone has a friend that they're not as bad as. And when you're thinking about, am I really that bad? You're like, well, I'm not that guy. But the problem is, if we have a little bit of self-awareness, we understand we are that guy. And let's be true, let's be honest. Self-awareness is hard for every one of us. See, you see that phrase I just used right there? Let's be honest. If I was more self-aware, I'd realize, you probably shouldn't say that, because the implication is, all that other stuff you said wasn't honest. You think, well, do I struggle with self-awareness? Here's a little test for you. Record your voice and then listen to it. you would be like, that's not what I sound like. Is that what everyone else hears? Record yourself. Get in front of a group of people and watch yourself. That's always fun. A Couple weeks ago, I was preaching and uh, I was at the 12.30, I was tired, I was all over the map. You're like, we're not surprised. And um, I looked back and somehow, just because I was a mess and moving too much, my collar popped out like this. I was like circa 76. You could have played the Bee Gees behind me because I was staying alive. No one told me. I was like, you could have given me like a little bit of, I was like, I looked like that the whole service and the guys in the back were like, yeah, we thought it was hilarious. Thank you for that. Here's the thing, I was joking about it with my wife. I was like, I'm gonna talk to people about being self-aware. I was like, do you think there are any examples? She started laughing. That's not very nice. We all have them, and here's the point. Self-awareness is only the beginning. Self-awareness is, you know what? Sometimes I judge myself by my intentions, not by what I say and what I do. I treated myself with the same standard I treat everyone else, I would come up short a lot more than I realize. But, but here's what I want, I want you to see. Henry Cloud is really smart, great counselor, great psychologist, works with a lot of different people. He was talking about, this was a powerful humble brag. He was in an interview on a podcast I was listening to, and he goes, you know, I've been working with these Fortune 25 CEOs. I go, Oh, uh, Henry... I thought it was Fortune 500 and then I realized, oh, no, 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 Fortune 25 are the top 25 companies in the world, I was like, he's a big deal. Anyways, here's what he said, they're all talking about self-awareness. And he said, the problem is, self-awareness is only the first step and it doesn't fix the problem. Because if you are selfish, If you are abusive, if you you treat people as a means to an end, the only thing that self-awareness does is make you aware of the way that you treat people. It has no power to actually change how you treat people. But the good news of the gospel is it doesn't stop with you have a problem. The gospel is you have a problem, you can't solve it, but there is a Jesus who can solve it. How does God respond to our nature? There's three different ways. Option A, he could punish us. He would be right, he would be just. The first time you violated his actions and none of us would make it very far. The first time he could punish you to the full extent of his law. And the truth is, All of us, even the most carefree, hey, you do what's cool for you, I'll do what's cool for me. All of us at some level live with a low-grade fear of sometime, at some point, God's gonna punish me. Psychologists actually have a term for this. We, We struggle to actually enjoy joy in our life. There's a term called foreboding joy. When your life's going really good, most people have a psychological effect that I can't enjoy this too much because sooner or later, the other foot is going to drop and we live with this sense that we're one moment away from God punishing us, from him pulling the rug out from underneath us. When something bad happens in our life, we think, is God punishing? Did my marriage fall apart? Did my business fall apart? Was that because of me? And when you think God exists to punish you, life becomes challenging and difficult and not really worth living. The second option, option B, is he could ignore it. Now, most of us would think that's a pretty good deal That whenever we make a mistake, whenever we have an attitude, whenever we have an action that we're not proud of, God just ignores it. It sounds so appealing. Here's the problem, that knife cuts both ways. Because if God doesn't pay attention to our poor choices and our sin, he doesn't pay attention to our hopes, our dreams, and what's really happening in our lives. The truth is, we don't just not want that from God, we don't want that from people. We don't want that from those that we look to and we want their respect. Patrick Lencioni, I heard him say this week that in the workplace, one of the things that he's been fascinated by is the highest performing, most successful, highest compensated people in the workplace. Their biggest struggle is feeling like no one knows and appreciates and understands the value they bring to the company. And many times a direct manager would say, hey, I'm gonna give you more money. And people turn down more money if they feel like no one knows or understands what they do on a daily basis. You say, why is that? Deep down inside of each one of us, we want to be known. We have to be known. We can't be whole, we can't be fulfilled, we can't find meaning in life if we feel like no one knows the real us. Option B won't cut it. So the only thing left is option C. And option C isn't trying your best to be spiritual. It's not trying your best to deserve the mercy of God. The only available option in option C is new life in Christ. The other day I was at 301 and there was a woman and she came up to me afterwards and she said, Pastor Jed, can I ask you a question? I said, yes, please, go ahead, whatever you want. She said, I I struggle with this sense that God's waiting to punish me, that, that I'm not good enough, that how do I know that he really loves me? I said, you know what, what you're experiencing, all of us experience at some level. Let me ask you this. Do you ever doubt that God loves Jesus? Oh no. She said, I would never doubt that God loves Jesus. He loves Jesus, he's for Jesus, he's proud of Jesus. I said, this is the power of the gospel. Second Corinthians 521, God made him who knew no sin so that in him, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're watching online, your hope that God loves you is not that you're special enough, it's not that you're good enough, it's not that you're talented enough. The hope that you have that God loves you is because God loves Jesus. And the message of the Gospel is, when God looks at your life, when you're in Christ, He doesn't see your mistakes, He doesn't see your failures, He doesn't see your sins, He sees the perfect obedience of His Son. And He says, because of my goodness, because of my mercy, I give you my love, I give you my goodness. Everything I give my Son, Jesus, I give you in Christ. That's good news. That's news that's so good you can't even believe it's true. What do we do with that? How do we respond to that? See, when we talk about when when we're growing, growing is not about give me the information. If access to information is all we needed to change, the internet would be the most progressive, evolved, enlightened, friendly place on the planet. We know it's a long way from that. The goal of growing is not how much knowledge can I get. I was with a group of young guys that were asking me questions about the Bible. They had all these great questions, and we were talking about. I was like, "Guys, make no mistake. Our goal is not to learn a bunch of facts. It's not about how much of the Bible can we know. It's about how much of the Bible can we actually live." So, if we understand this about God's mercy, how do we actually live it? How do we respond to God's mercy? I want to give you two quick points before I pray for you. The first one is this: You say, Jed. Help me to understand, if if we're gonna live this way, if we're gonna apply it, help me to understand really clearly what this mercy is and what our great need is. Here's what I would say. Mercy is more than help in trouble or absolution from the penalties we deserve. It's not just in case of emergency, break glass. Mercy is God's constant goodness in our lives through the person of Jesus. You need it every day. This idea that somehow you only need mercy when you're in a ditch is a lie that'll keep you separated from God. Every day, every moment of your life, you and I are dependent upon His mercy. So, how do we respond to that? The first thing is this our view of God gets bigger. And here's the reason why mercy is not roaming around in the wild, mercy is not out there that you can just stumble upon. Mercy is other. It's not ordinary, it's not normal, it's not natural, it's extraordinary, it's other, it's supernatural. Here's the thing about God. He's so much bigger than our ability to even imagine how good he might be. The prophet Micah, Micah 7:18, says this. Who is a God like you? Meaning, I can't even imagine, I can't even dream up, my mind's not creative enough to create a God as good as you are. Who is a God like you who pardons sins, forgives transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but I love this, look at this, but you delight to show mercy. That changes everything. It's not obligatory for God to show mercy. He's not compelled against his will to show mercy. God loves it. He enjoys it. When you and I go, wait, 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 they're getting away with someone. When we go, God, you've got to teach them a lesson. God goes, no, no, watch what I'm about to do. My goodness and my mercy is going to change them. If you've ever felt like that makes me uncomfortable, you're in good company all throughout scripture. God called Jonah to go to Nineveh and he kept fighting it and fighting it. And he wasn't afraid that Nineveh wasn't gonna respond to the message, he was afraid they would. He was so hurt and angry with Nineveh, he didn't want them to repent. You think about the Pharisees, they'd gather around. You you think about one of our favorite stories in the Bible, we preach about it all the time, Luke 15, the prodigal son. The young son whose life is a disaster. It's a dumpster fire, accurately. That's a biblical term. It's also a callback. Anyways, he comes back. The older brother doesn't go, this is awesome. I'm so glad you're back. The older brother goes, why are you doing this? It's not fair. The disciples, Jesus would come to a woman in Samaria and he'd extend kindness and grace to her and mercy. He'd catch a woman in adultery and the disciples were like, what are you doing? Jesus would say, you don't know what my father is like, back up, get out of the way of what God is wanting to do. If you've ever felt like, I'm uncomfortable with that, I don't know, God is other, mercy is other. God's so much bigger and better than we imagine him to be. And until you see that, it's gonna be really difficult to do the second thing, because once you see how good God is, you're free to give mercy to others. This is hard for us. We don't really even know what that looks like. Sometimes we we call something mercy that's not really mercy. See, sometimes people we love, people we care, we give them extra freedom, we give them extra margin. You know, with our kids, we think they're cute, so we give them a little extra, you know. You've been on the airplane with that parent or you've been in the restaurant with that parent. They're like, aren't they cute? You're like, not really. But when you are that parent, you're like, oh, they're so cute, why? Because we give mercy to people that we like. Problem is, it's not really mercy. It's really maybe closer to kindness. See, life is long. This is just a good principle, a good relational principle. Life is long. Careful how you treat people, because it's interesting how the way you treat someone that you feel like can help you get somewhere you're trying to go, and you think, "I I have the power in this situation. It's amazing how those people come back into our lives and they have long memories of how we treated them. See, when you're talking about relationships and trying to, to have transactional relationships that are meaningful, there's value in that. And the best thing that you could do is, what would it feel like to be the other person? Empathy is really helpful in healthy relationships, but empathy and negotiation and kindness, none of those have anything to do with mercy. Mercy is compassion towards an offender. And you don't have the power. You're not good enough. You're not, you don't have enough willpower. I don't have enough willpower. I'm not good enough by my nature. The only way we live that way is we receive that mercy from God, and then we give it to somebody else. You say, how do I know if I'm really living this way? Here's a couple thoughts. Here's a couple things. I put them there in your notes. Do you complain or resist when God asks you to do something? We all do that. The further we get away from how good God's been, how patient he's been, how long-suffering he's been, the easier it is to come up with a a valid reason in our minds why we don't have to obey. Do you respect and honor people who can't help you? Are you kind to only those who can be kind back in return, who can give you something? Are you quick to keep score? Do you feel the need to attack others? Do you quickly defend yourself? And and I'll be the first one to admit, I do all of these things more often than I would like to admit. But the only way that allowed me to break free from my nature is to center in on the reality of my desperate need for the mercy of God. Where in your life do you need His mercy? And maybe a better question would be, where in your life could His mercy flow through you to someone else. Maybe there's a person at work. You feel like they've been wrongly promoted. They take credit for things that they didn't deserve. That frustrates you. You feel like there's a great injustice being done. And we've all been there. Whether it's a classroom experience, whether it's a work experience. What would it look like for you to, instead of going, somebody's got to do something about this, to go, I'm going to believe the best. I'm going to extend compassion. I'm going to wish them the best in their, in their career and in their family and in their life. Maybe there's a friendship. Maybe a close friend in a small group or a friend you grew up with hurt you, said something about you, did something that wounded you, and you've carried that wound, and you felt like I'm never gonna love them, I'm never gonna trust them, I'm never gonna do that again. How would that relationship be different if instead of keeping a record of wrongs, you extended mercy? Don't hear what I'm not saying. Mercy is not calling something that's wrong good. Mercy is an admission of this person wronged me, but instead of responding in kind, I'm gonna love them. What about a wounded spouse? What about that no one can hurt you like your spouse? And so many of us, we, we go, well, if my spouse would do this, then I will do this for them. That's the opposite of what mercy is. Mercy goes first. Though you hurt me, though you wounded me, I'm gonna give you love, I'm gonna give you grace, I'm gonna give you kindness, not because you deserve it or it's appropriate or it's fair, but because I can't help but respond any other way because I'm so overwhelmed by the mercy of God that I've received. What about a child who's far from God? No pain like kid pain. So I've mentioned this this weekend. After every service, someone stops me and said, what you said meant so much to me that's where I'm at with my child. I've run out of prayers to pray, run out of people to talk to. I don't know what to do. I feel like I failed. I feel like I tried to teach them the lesson and they didn't get the lesson and I don't want them to live this way anymore. You feel responsible, you feel pain, you feel like you should be punished. How would that relationship be different? Not if you endorse their poor choices or their bad behavior, but if you extended the mercy of God. They would be different and you would be different. Let's pray. Jesus, we're overwhelmed by your goodness. Lord, we join with Micah. Who is a God like you who forgives sins, who delights to show mercy? Lord, we wanna be a people with hearts like your heart. It doesn't come natural to us. Maybe you're here and you've never received the mercy of God that Ephesians 2 is talking about. You've never found new life in Christ. You thought, Jed, I thought it was about doing religious stuff or trying harder. Maybe you're watching online or in McKinney and you're thinking, I thought I understood what this Jesus thing was, but I don't have that. You can have that. Not on the basis of your good deeds. Right where you're at, you don't have to clean up your life to get ready for it. You just say, Jesus, I put my hope and my trust in you. Make it your own words and right there, you'll receive that new life in Christ. You said, God, I give you my sin, I give you my nature, and I receive the life I was created to live. Maybe you've prayed that prayer, but you forgot what that mercy is like. God help each one of us not to keep record of wrongs, not to take it as our personal responsibility to make the world just and fair. We're not strong enough, we're not good enough, we're not even able to do that job. You are God. We give that job back to you. Help us be a people who delight to show mercy not because others deserve it, but because you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Milestone Church. We hope it's been an encouragement for you today. We invite you to listen to other messages on this podcast or discover who we are by visiting our website at milestonechurch.com.